This is the 966, the podcast and show that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia. Episode 16, Mashallah Richard. Today we have a very yes. special guest host, Dr. Robert Mogulnicki, adjunct assistant professor, Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown and senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today on the 966 and riffing on all things Saudi. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being here. And I should add, Lucian, yes, Robert, great to have you. I should add he's a, a recently published author on the political economy of free zones in the Gulf Arab states. Uh, so he is the expert on this, yeah. in, in addition to his other, uh, other plaudits. Before we get started, as always, we must begin by thanking those who have swiped right on the 966 by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, YouTube as well, shukran. But let's jump right into it. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Yes, one big thing. Uh, beginning January 1, 2022, the UAE will shift its official weekend for government employees to Saturday and Sunday. Since Friday is the Muslim Day of Worship, work on Friday will end by noon uh, with sermons and prayers beginning at 1.15. Uh, so not only is the weekend shifted, but the work week is shortened to four and a half days for Emiratis employed by the government. Now, it should be noted that private companies will be free to choose their own working week, so that's to follow or not to follow. The UAE said the move would ensure smooth financial trade and economic transactions with countries that follow a Saturday-Sunday weekend, facilitating stronger international business links and opportunities for UAE-based and multinational firms. Last month, the UAE also approved sweeping legal reforms, including new commercial law amendments aimed at increasing foreign direct investment. The UAE had, had already liberalized laws regarding cohabitation before marriage, alcohol, and personal status laws and introduce longer-term visas to lure businesses and talent. It is worth noting that in 2006, the UAE was the first GC state to shift the traditional Thursday-Friday weekend to the current for the rest of the GCC Friday-Saturday weekend. Saudi Arabia followed suit in 2013, and, and then the rest of the Gulf did as well. Um, we may touch on this in the discussion that ensues today on investment, but this, this UAE weekend shift is especially interesting in the light of the budding battle for business between Saudi Arabia and the UAE in terms of attracting global corporations, skilled expatriates, and foreign direct investment. The alliterative bu uh, budding battle for business. <laughs> <laughs> battle for business, yes. Um, it I should also be noted, that. And, and I thought that was really interesting that they are the first country in the world to make Friday a half day. So they, they are the first country in the world to have a four and a half day work week which is you know, really interesting. And, you know, so, so, so here we have, you know, really progressive labor uh, regulations coming out of the Gulf, you know, cut, cut or take note. I'm, I'm color me shocked that the first nation in the world to shorten their week is not <laughs> Spain or France where the work ethic is a little bit lighter and there's a little bit of booze at lunch, uh, which is common. So um, well, the UAE, I mean, the UAE is very good at making the most of publicity and PR and, uh, you know, the Gulf region in particular, they love to be the first to do anything. So I think the, um, yeah, the announcement of, of moving the weekend is big news, but then shortening the week uh, was also a good way to generate some buzz and some press. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I really try to separate this news into two categories. One category is that the hard economic calculation that as Richard referred to, the UAE is trying to do whatever it can to stay a couple of steps ahead of its regional competitors. And one way to do that in the economic realm is to move, you know, move the work week or move the weekend to better align with with the global business standards. I think the the 4.5, uh, you know, work uh, work day, shortening the work day to improve well-being and all that. I, I do attribute a lot of that to PR and publicity fluff a little bit. I mean, as we as we just mentioned, the, the private sector is probably not going to uh, cut down the work week. They'll probably still be working, um, you know, five days. And I've already been hearing from a few contacts that this shift in this policy change is going to create some disruptions on the home front, too. I mean, will schools follow suit? I mean, how are all of the various parts of your day? If you're a business person, your kids go to school. I mean, everything has to fall in line. So it's um it's it's a step forward, but also in, in some spheres, it's going to be a disruption as well. This is a regular theme with this 966 in that the, the Saudis who uh, in the past have not been particularly adept at PR 
and have actually shied away from it. Uh, and when they weighed in, it, would, it could be sometimes disastrous. Have now become masters of the glitz big, big uh, announcement. And uh, and I, I chuckled in in your piece, you know, that we're going to get to where one of the things you said the constant barrage of new economic announcements. And and as Lucian will attest, I I, I went full grump on Oxygen the other and Oxygen actually does in, in a recent <laughs> podcast because they got enough on their plate. They have enormous enormous things ongoing, but every other day, it seems, there's this major announcement. So yes. A lot of what we do here, what we try and do here, and usually with Saudi, but in this case UAE, is unpack what it really means. Mm -hmm. And so that's what your point is 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 spot on. What does this really mean? We don't know. Just how yet. long? What's the what's the money line on on how long it takes Saudi to follow suit on this, if at all? A lot longer. And yeah. you know, it, and, and Robin, you can weigh in, but I mean, '06 they went the the first shift, and then in 2013. But we have to remember, uh, the Emirates is 80 percent expat. Um, mm. Saudi Arabia's thirty in the thirty range, um, and you have so so this is extremely disruptive, and it's and and you know moving the <clears throat> day of worship for the, the seat of the holy sites is an entirely different proposition, a much more conservative society, much, as obviously much uh, smaller expat community. So it's much more problematic. I think I'd agree with Richard. I'd agree with Richard on that. I I mean, my sense is that the Saudis will look for some other area to uh, to make gains in terms of making their commercial environment and business environment more attractive to uh, to foreign investors and, and global business people. Uh, the demographics are are a big hurdle there in making those types of, of shifts. But at the same time, we have seen a lot of this tit for tat economic policy announcements over the past several months. I mean, the uh, mm -hmm. legal reforms and social reforms uh, coming out of the UAE. A lot of those have been mirrored pretty quickly in Saudi Arabia. Um, the uh, pathway to citizenship that uh, was announced initially in the UAE, it took a few months, but uh, we saw, I believe, November, Saudi Arabia coming around and doing that as well. So I wouldn't say they're far behind necessarily, but it's just a question of what race do they want to be in? Do they want to just uh, be you know, mirroring these policies or do they want to look to another area where they might be able to exploit their comparative advantage a little bit uh, in a little bit of a better sense. Yeah, it, it, it's been an interesting, there's a little bit of, even a short time that it's happened, a little bit of evolution in the sense that, so when Saudis, for example, change their rules about how they're gonna tax uh, goods coming out of Emirati free zones, and when the Saudis said, you know, I, you, we need, you need to be have your headquarters here if you're doing business with government uh, by January 2024, a lot of people said, okay, this is a zero-sum game, here come the Saudis. But as they, I think as people get into it, say, actually, this could be good for the region. And you, just as you said, you, you know, part of what I talked about was the, the significant legal reforms that UAE has put in, that those are much more likely to move along, not obviously cohabitation or marriage or alcohol soon, but you know, those in terms of regulatory environment will come around to Saudi Arabia. And, and you sort of have this dynamic where, where UAE has the history, the environment, and the regulatory and legal framework that's very attractive, Saudi Arabia has the market. Um, it, it, it's it's good for the the Gulf if Saudi Arabia can catch up with the UAE a bit on its legal and regulatory environment. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a zero sum game, in my opinion. My one big thing this week is we recently had an awesome interview with Fahad Nazar, who's spokesperson for the Saudi embassy. Fahad is the guy who answers questions to the media on pretty much any topic that's Saudi related. So when we interviewed him, we had a chance to sort of ask him some tough but fair questions about a host of issues. One of the tougher questions we asked him was about how he overcomes skepticism about Saudi Arabia. And here's what Fahad said. The changes are happening so fast that you can, if you spend a month, for instance, you can see them unfold right before your eyes. That certainly has been my experience. So when I was there last week, um, there were a couple of delegations. I was actually accompanying one, one of them. There was a business delegation from Colorado. Uh, most of them had never been to the kingdom. And it is very, I think that's the most gratifying part of my job is that first 24 hours I spend with uh, delegations, especially those who've never been to the kingdom. Once they soak, soak things in, they look around, they, they talk to Saudis, and without being prompted or without me asking them, they come up to me on their own and say, 
we had no idea uh, that this is going on in Saudi Arabia. We have heard so much about Saudi Arabia and read so much about it, but what we've read and heard has been just a snapshot, uh, often just not an accurate picture, not an accurate depiction. Reality is so much different. It is such so, so much more positive. So this answer is really excellent. It made me think about my perceptions of Saudi Arabia before I went for the first time. I remember my friends and family telling me specifically to be careful as if Saudi Arabia were dangerous or unsafe. All they knew about Saudi Arabia is what they had seen in media, like Jamie Foxx's The Kingdom and films and everything. Um, and I just remember getting to Saudi Arabia and being like, wow, this is actually completely different than I had even seen in like any of the research writing, uh, you know, working with Sustig that I that I'd ever seen. Um, and it was actually fun. And that was sort of like when I was thinking about Fahad talking about his answer about hosting Americans over in Saudi Arabia and having them say to him, man, this is like completely different than I ever imagined, even with seeing images and videos and everything. Um, we talk about the kingdom a lot uh, on this podcast until we're blue in the face. Um, but seeing it for yourself is kind of just unlike anything you can experience online or or um, reading about it. This exact sentiment was echoed recently and chronicled by Diana Lauterhouse, who wrote for Deadline this week about her experiences visiting Saudi Arabia for the first time for the Red Sea Film Festival, which looks awesome. Um, that's my one big thing this week, visit Saudi. If I could ask you, do you guys remember your first time visit? I mean, I know Richard, you grew up there, but um, Robert, actually, let me ask you, do you remember your first time visiting um, Saudi and the region and sort of your perceptions about how, how uh, what you saw on the ground and how they matched up with uh, what you thought about it beforehand? Absolutely. I, I was actually a, a master's student at uh, the University of Oxford, and I traveled out there on a consulting gig, uh, first to uh, the capital, Riyadh, and then on a separate trip up to uh, Jeddah. So I was working at the time with uh, private sector companies uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. And to tell you the truth, even at that time, I mean, early on, well before um, Mohammed bin Salman came to came onto the scene um, and started, you know, embarked on this very ambitious uh, social and, and economic transformation, of which I think the social component has been, uh, you know, particularly um, easy to uh, visible and and in easy to uh, to identify. Um, I actually saw a lot of these changes beginning to take place, even in the workplaces uh, at that time, 2014, 2015. I mean, women in the workplace, um, especially in private sector uh, firms, there were you know um, men and women working together and in, in in the same workspace. So, but I mean, again, it was not as visible, not as apparent as it is today. But it was the beginning of this transformation. Um, from my understanding, you know, this is I have not been to Saudi Arabia in, in some time, mostly because of the coronavirus. Um, but uh, everything that we're hearing about Saudi Arabia is that transformation is, is, is just tremendous. Um, and that much of the country as we know it, and many people who have been longtime observers say, there are some parts we don't even recognize anymore. Um, mostly uh, for the better. Um, there are some, of course, some there's some criticisms too, but uh, just a place that's undergoing a tremendous amount of change. So uh, I, I didn't grow up. I, I first lived in Saudi in the 80s when I was much, much younger. And then um, uh, after doing my master's at Hopkins, and then and then uh, when I was executive director with the Middle East Policy Council for over a decade, and w it was uh, in and out of Saudi Arabia once or twice a year, all the time, and then you know spent extended time over there, and and you know uh, to 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 what Robert was saying about the sense of things, and typically when you'd come in, uh, and I was aware of this, I dealt with. Western-educated, very articulate English-speaking Saudis, which is a subset in Saudi Arabia, and you have to understand the larger picture. But this community, this segment of society, was thinking very much along these things. Everything was, uh, you know, very forward-thinking. And I've I've found over the years that that uh, the Saudis are thinking about a lot of things going to the future in terms of what they need to do economically, socially, um, well before they actually have an opportunity to realize them. And one of the triggers of this change now is what I've always said is that, that social change, you know, the things that women driving, the Vision 2030, these are all going to be driven by economic imperatives, which is what's happened. Significant sectors of society, and especially the youth now, we're ready for this. So um, 
for me, uh, I agree 100%. What, what you're saying, what Fahad's saying is, you know, if you, if you don't believe it, you really should go to see because it is real. Um, um, but for me, it's sort of been a, 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 an arc over a, a long 30-year period that is really accelerated and is especially fascinating now. But you can see you can see the impulse and the instincts and the and the desire and aspirations you know well back as Robert said well back a decade ago, so to see it coming together and see real change and it is real change. Remember this is this is this is a country that that you know whose motto was was progress without change, um, and uh, you know in some ways other countries do that, but this was, you know, progress without change. And the fact is they they discovered they're not going to achieve progress without some change. And that's what we're seeing now. So let's move on to our first topic today. Saudi Arabia's ever more ambitious investment strategy, unless you've been living under Elephant Rock, you probably know by now <laughs> that attracting investment is pivotal to the kingdom's economic transformation plans. Late last month, our guest host today, Robert Mogulnicki wrote about the kingdom's investment drive in a really great piece for the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington blog. Quote, there is still time for Saudi Arabia to accomplish many of Vision 2030's foreign investment objectives, but the window of opportunity is closing quickly. Robert, you write, I'd like to let you pick it up from here. Could you talk a little bit about how Saudi Arabia still has its work cut out for it in boosting investment within the kingdom's borders? I'd be happy to. Uh... First, let me start by saying that as somebody who uh, collects a paycheck every two weeks to think, read, and write on on this subject uh, precisely, I was you know I was grappling with this idea that it's really really difficult to uh, get on top of all of the news and developments that are coming out of Saudi Arabia in this space in terms of what the country's government is trying to do to attract foreign direct investment. It seems like every week or every day we have new investment strategies, new investment initiatives, new uh, projects, um, repackaging all of these different dimensions into new names, bringing in new national champions to support the initiative. The list goes on and on and on. And quite honestly, it's been happening for uh, not just weeks or, or months, but, but years. So I, I wanted from time to time, I try to take a step back and do a broader assessment of, of what's really going on. And the big takeaway for me is that um, what Saudi Arabia's government is trying to do in terms of boosting foreign direct investment is clearly ambitious and they have to be given credit for that. They are taking risks. They are trying to exploit every possible avenue, every possible investment partnership that they can. Um, I've likened it to uh, you know, racing at 100 miles per hour in every direction. That I think um, is commendable in terms of the ambition. Uh, at the same time, uh, we, as Richard said, are seeing this barrage of uh, new announcements, strategies, initiatives, projects. And at a certain point, uh, that influx um, is a little bit overwhelming. And it starts to cloud the initial targets that um, have been communicated to analysts, to investors, um, the types of targets and goalposts that we can use to evaluate and assess um, where progress has been made and where um, you know, we uh, have yet to see progress and, and might um, actually think, well, there's some challenges here that need to be addressed. So in a nutshell, I say, look, I don't want to be a scaremonger. Um, I don't like to engage in doomsday scenarios. I believe Saudi Arabia as a country has a tremendous amount to offer. Um, yes, the UAE, neighboring UAE is very nimble and they, uh, and, and they can attract a lot of PR with, with initiatives and announcements. But a lot of people forget that the scale of change and the, the potential for, for change in Saudi Arabia offers a lot of opportunities for investors. So um, I, I guess uh, I say that the window is, is, is still open. There's still time. We have eight or so years uh, to this 2030 um, uh, deadline that a lot of people want to, to use to hold Saudi Arabia accountable for a number of different economic targets, including foreign direct investment. And I think the work that they have, the Saudis have for them right now is to 
perhaps um, lighten up, uh, you know, uh, take their foot off the pedal in terms of announcing uh, initiatives and strategies and actually spend a little bit more time on the implementation. Uh, let the targets, clarify the targets, clarify um, the objectives and the goals, and then uh, work to, to meet those targets. Um, one way to do that is obviously to create a little bit better coherence for investment policies. And they've started to do that with uh, investment, I, I believe with um, policy coordination councils and bureaus that we've heard about over the past year or so. Um, working to reduce some of the friction with neighbors as Saudi Arabia continues on its very ambitious economic development path will also be important. I mean, I think we got to a point where Saudi and the UAE, there was very much this uh, neighborly friction uh, developing. It's still there, probably persists for some time, but um, I think all parties have to work to, to reduce that tension. Uh, and then finally, as I said, clarifying what the targets are, um, being clear and transparent about the targets. Some of those targets will be met, some will not be met. I think uh, it's better to, to just identify um, what is a possible and feasible policy outcome and what are policies that, you know, in this very ambitious, um, uh, broad and wide-ranging investment strategy, what policies need to be tweaked. This is something I've sort of been pounding the drum on um, because, uh, the, you know, just in looking at your one article, Robert, you know, I went through and I was just sort of amazed. And you were trying to do sort of a, you know, a rundown and, and the number of topics that, you know, the NIS, Saudi Middle East Green Initiative, Regional Headquarters Drive, Citizenship for Skilled Professionals, you know, that embassy note about tax issues. Um, they are, I think your analogy is great. They're going 100 miles an hour in every direction. And uh, I, I, I like you I, you, I could not agree more. I applaud them. I think it's important for them to be amb ambitious and aspirational. Uh, they just need to do the work. And what what people don't understand often about Saudi Arabia, as we try to unpack, I, 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 I liken it sometimes to, to the Nitakat initiative. You know, so they want to Saudiize the workforce. So they want to put in some uh, regulations about, you know, companies who, you know, what levels of Saudi employment they need to sustain in order to, to get, you know, red, green, or yellow. Um, but before they can do that, they have to digitize all the reporting because they don't even know how many employers are in the how many employees are in the country who has what who's where so this process takes a long time so they have to go back and digitize which is which is uh, a positive then they have to interact with the uh, the business community to find out you know where they overshot when they have to come back so this has been an ongoing process for Nitikot for for a decade and it's now people are accustomed to it and, and so on and so forth. But underlying the underlying work that needed to be done was enormous in order to get to where they are. Same thing with the, the, the you know, I applaud them for their, their giga projects, especially the, you know, the greenfield projects like Neom and the Red Sea and, and uh, Kadia and these sorts of things where, yeah, in, in a world where ESG is the norm and where fourth industrial revolution is the selling point, absolutely go for broke and sell it, sell it big, but you still have to do the work. And so much of the work is regulatory. And I would add to, you know, and first of all, 100% agreement, like I said with you, Robert, it worries me sometimes for the, for the inconsistent observer that they set themselves up for failure. And I, and I, and I uh, you know, an example of this, the two trillion, you know, Saudi Aramco IPO is gonna be two trillion, which the, the Crown Prince has said, all right, that's great. It didn't hit it. It, it, it went over it, but it didn't hit it on the initial thing. What people forget is in order to get to that issue, they had to rewrite you know, uh, all sorts of laws. Saudi Arabia had to go back in and, and, and meet a whole different set of accounting principles. They did an enormous, uh, enormous work behind the scenes to get to that point. It was, a, and it was a, a really a great success. Even if it didn't list on international markets, it, you know, it, it listed on the, on the Saudi market. Huge success. But all people worried about was it didn't hit two trillion, and that misses the point. And sometimes this glitz, this PR blitz, it it, it enables people or, or or facilitates people in missing the point, which is it's not so much that they're going to hit these marks; it's more that the direction they've chosen to take. I entirely agree, uh, agree with you, Richard. I mean, 
One another example, uh, a little bit uh, closer to today. I mean, just think, uh, it's, it's wild that you mentioned the IPO of Aramco. I was just thinking about that before uh, before coming to this podcast, and it's a longer than I remember. I mean, time has kind of moved very quickly and very slowly at the same yeah. time. But I mean, recently with this announcement in Saudi Arabia that the, the new target for uh, inward FDI is going to be a you know, hundred billion dollars. Uh, this is another example where one would be inclined to say or to ask, are Saudis setting themselves up for failure? If we look back at the last couple of decades of, of FDI, um, I mean, in the 2008, 09, when uh, that was a peak year, not necessarily for good, all of the right reasons, as we know, a, a major global economic crisis and recession followed that period. I believe inward FDI was just shy of $40 billion. Um, so now, and in the last couple of years, we're talking single digits. So um, now that is if we put aside some of the monetization of oil and gas um, assets, uh, you know, oil and gas pipeline networks and those types of things. But that's not really the type of, uh, of, of FDI that Saudi Arabia is talking about as part of its vision 2030. It's not the long term kind of sustainable FDI that they're trying to attract. So that's another example that immediately comes to mind. I mean, is it part of a strategy that is it the McKinsey? Well, let's give you, you know, 140 hours of work for this week and see what you can do. Um, just setting someone <laughs> up with an impossible task and, and just being happy with whatever, um, what, whatever emerges. Maybe that's part of the strategy. Um, I'm not quite sure, but it, do, it is a little confounding. Oh, um, sorry, go ahead. Jump, please jump in. No, that was one of my, I had a, tw uh, a Twitter uh, commentator about Oxygen, you know, saying, you know, kudos to whatever PR firm came up with this and he got paid for doing it. Um, but, you know, that NIS, uh, it, it, we know Khaled Al-Fala, who's Minister of Investment, is a really capable guy with an extraordinary pedigree. I mean, he, he, this is a guy who, who has the energy and the, and the intellect to do these things uh, and, and lead these efforts. But that NIS, I did broke down. It's it's stunning. I mean, by 2030, annual investment. This is what they're shooting for of 103. And this is what's interesting: 103.45 billion annually. So this is the number that came up with which um, local investment 450 billion annually. So between now and 2030, the target is 7.2 trillion total to diversify the economy. 3.2 trillion investments, 1.3 of that from Sharik, local investment, 800 billion from PIF and, and 1.3 trillion from FDI. And then 2.67 trillion in government spending over the next 10 years. Now I can see that their budget is gonna be somewhere between 250 and 300 billion a year. So you times 10, that's what you get. And then 1.3 trillion in consumer spending. These are huge numbers and it's great to shoot for them, but are they realistic? Well, yeah, that's the that's that's the that's the key question here. And uh, on top of that is how do you get there? I mean, that's the more important question. Yeah. Not only are they realistic, but how do you get there? And I see a couple of a couple of potential problems uh, on the horizon. I mean, number one, we talked about this moving uh, at 100 miles per hour in every direction. Well, some some observers, and I'm sure many um, you know policymakers in in Saudi Arabia would say, well, we have these very ambitious targets, so we have to be very ambitious in how we get there. And I say, well, that's fine. I mean, I think you look around the Gulf, if you go to Bahrain and you go to Qatar, they have similar strategies um, in the sense of they will identify a number of uh, initiatives and projects. But the calculation is we are such small countries that if one or two of these, uh, of these strategies or initiatives or projects succeeds, it'll make a big difference. And I heard that uh, you know, right from from the uh, uh, from a Bahraini official saying, you know, we can do 10, 10 different initiatives and it's just one or two of them, you know, uh, FinTech, for example, really takes off. That's gonna have a huge impact in our small country. Saudi Arabia isn't like that. So that, that strategy doesn't quite add up as far as um, how I'm looking at it. The other one comes to what happens when these different, uh, the different directions of this economic development approach um, are in many cases contradictory. And I'll give one example. Um, this big focus on ESG principled investing, I mean, everything now is to be ESG. It's got to be green. Um, it's, there has to be a focus on renewable energy. 
We see that happening in Saudi Arabia in a very big way. Again, on one level, it's commendable. This is not something we should ignore. I mean, I always say, though, if, you know, uh, principled, environmentally friendly and sustainable investing was, uh, you know, um, if it was easy and guaranteed profits, then, you know, saving the environment would be the easiest decision that anybody ever made. We could all get rich uh, at the same time. But more seriously, on the other end of that spectrum, we see um, the Saudi government and, and national champions like Saudi Aramco monetizing their assets, taking proceeds from the IPO and dumping them into sovereign wealth funds that are then um, supposed to, with these new mandates, be investing those proceeds, at, you know, according to ESG principles and in all of these green initiatives. And I think at a certain point, uh, the rubber is going to hit the road and that uh, either investors, I and mean, there are going to be some investors who say this is what Saudi Arabia has to do to cash out its assets and to get to the next stage. And that's a fair argument. But some investors are going to say there's a bit of a contradiction here. I'm not so sure I want to be, uh, be part of that. Um, so I, I think there are some growing pains, uh, you know, along uh, or that are going to emerge if they, I think they're already there, but they're going to become more and more apparent in terms of how you reconcile this multifaceted investment drive, um, whether it's in terms of what's going to work and what's not going to work, whether it's in terms of uh, trying to minimize contradictions. Uh, and ultimately, as you said, Richard, um, you know, ideally try to meet some of these very ambitious targets. You know, we, we've spent a number of episodes uh, where the COP26 uh, and was, was a, a topic and Saudi Arabia's you know, traditionally had sort of a slow road uh, environmental issues, and now they 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 came through with the the green initiative and and uh, in the lead up to COP26, and that's again that's that's an, another example of real aspirations that are 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 based on uncertain principles. In other words, uh, you know, if they're going to reach these targets, certainly in terms of renewable energy, and they want to want to develop a carbon capture economy. Uh, those those technologies are still nascent. They're not proven to be scalable. And it may be that they're trying, and, and I can see them. I can see them look and go, look, all right, we saw solar prices, you know, drop 90% in a decade. We saw onshore wind prices drop 80% in a decade. You know, we think, you know, we can see this happening again with carbon ca uh, carbon capture technology. And and maybe we can be the hub for this sort of thing. So. So I, I applaud the ambition, but, you know, it's yet to be seen. And that's, I think, for both of us, we're saying that we, we, we'd, like to, we'd like to see that implementation and move towards these goals that they've laid out. Hydrogen, hydrogen fits, that, uh, fit that, fits that mold as well. I mean, our um, kind of, uh, resident or uh, non-resident energy expert, Kate Dorian, I mean, she says uh, hydrogen's still a long way off. Um, but, but we hear a lot about hydrogen in Saudi Arabia. Again, I, I, I mean... We have to applaud the the future um, future leaning initiatives or, or future looking initiatives that uh, might push hydrogen out to the front of this energy mix. But um, you know, is it really there yet? And and then two, what when we start to move away in a genuine sense away from oil and gas as the mainstay of of, of government revenues in a country like Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, another important question is asking where are those government revenues going to come come from? Um, you know, that is also going to be part of the transition. I mean, the energy transition is is going is is very real and is is going to happen. There's also going to be a uh, you know public sef public sector finance uh, evolution uh, happening in the Gulf, and there that's going to present some serious challenges. How does the government generate the same level of revenues? or more, according to some of the figures that, that, that you cited, uh, Richard, about how big the government uh, budgets intend to be from these renewable energies or, 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 or other energies, clean, green, but uh, in some cases, unproven energy sources. I'm not sure, I don't have an answer for that, but I hope some people in, in, in these governments are, are actively working to figure it out. Uh, yes, I think we're very much with you. We, we uh, previous episode, we, we uh, looked at the Jafura project and that's a you know 68 to 100 billion dollar investment that is in shale natural gas which they intended which you know they'll first say will supplant crude oil which is good for climate and then ultimately will lead to blue hydrogen but 
um, which is right now the most economic of the of the ones that are palatable. Um, but again, you know, they're talking about two 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 million metric tons, two million metric tons by 2030. So this is still a it's a launch, it's a scale up. It's going to take some time. And I, I actually turned to something that that Lucian said, uh, you know, on the optimistic side early on. He said, I don't know what we were talking about, Lucian, but you said, you know, you got to start somewhere. And that part, I really do applaud the Saudis. I would, as I've said before, I would, it wouldn't kill me if they adopted the habit of under-promising and over-performing. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt you. I just, after the, uh, some of the net zero uh, emissions uh, announcements uh, with the UAE kind of pledging by, by 2050 and some of the other countries, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Bahrain, um, pledging by 2060, I believe, or maybe 10 years later, but the rough, roughly the same ballpark. I asked a couple of contacts who work squarely in the energy space. I mean, what do you think about this? Is this feasible? And this, well, maybe not, but it's just, it's, it's great that they have a plan. I mean, a, a yeah. plan now is better yeah. than nothing. Let's, let's move on to topic two. Um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's GCC tour, uh, gentlemen for a region with virtually no snow. There seems to be a lot of thawing going on in the region. Um, <laughs> oh, well played. Can we get a golf clap? Uh, <laughs> when I wrote that, I was like, man, that's it's gold. Uh, <laughs> MBS, uh, after a very busy weekend last weekend, welcoming President Macron of France and hosting the first ever F1 in Saudi Arabia, hit the road for a regional tour of GCC nations. The tour began in Oman, where photos showed crown, the Crown Prince and his entourage meeting with Haitham bin Tariq at Al Alam Palace in Muscat. Um, really cool photos on SPA, the official government site. Check them out. MBS um, then arrived in Dubai on Tuesday, uh, went to Expo 2020, and also visited Abu Dhabi. Um, both Saudi and UAE publications yesterday lauded the Crown Prince's arrival there, but the two are increasingly in competition to win the mantle of, quote, most attractive invest investment destination in the region, as we just discussed. Um, on Wednesday, the Crown Prince visited Qatar, his first trip there since the diplomatic standoff between the two nations, which lasted several years. I'm going to stop there. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, Robert, let's start with you. Why the thaw in relations now? And what does this trip mean from uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman? Well, I think the, the thaw really started to take place earlier this year um, as we uh, or i say the gulf region transitioned out of a very difficult uh, 2020 that i would categorize as an inward looking year all of the countries in the region and their governments they were looking inward addressing urgent domestic challenges mostly on the economic front and as 2020 wrapped up uh, and 2021 started we began to see probably the, the products of a slightly more outward looking uh, approach to the region. Trying to encourage these fragile economic recoveries requires a stable region. It requires trading partners. It requires a you know, reduction of tensions um, that you know, will allow foreign investors and traders and business people to feel comfortable, to not be constantly worried about political risk. And, and that's very much how I understood the um, the framework of kind of easing regional tensions, increasing uh, regional cooperation um, of, you know, that framework of really coming into being early in 2021. We saw the reconciliation uh, in January with Qatar coming more squarely into the fold of the GCC and more or less business operations across the region returning to a more familiar um, uh, mode of operating. And I my general sense in speaking with others is that everyone was able to breathe a sigh of relief there. That was a good thing. Um, there was this sense that uh, tensions had in some cases spiraled out of control and there was all of the parties had reached a point of diminishing returns, at least on an economic level. And what else was there to gain from continuing a boycott from, um, you know, having these rising tensions with, with neighboring states. So now I, I see it as all of the all of the actors in the region are moving in the other direction to say we had everything to lose by continuing this strategy. We have everything to gain from moving in the other direction. More dialogues, um, more economic cooperation, more business deals. I think this Mohammed bin Salman trip around the GCC in particular, although it takes place in this broad uh, framework that I, I laid out, 
I think it's 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 probably most closely related to uh, the Iran uh, issue and the ongoing talks in Vienna, the ongoing Saudi-Iran talks, uh, UAE visit to Iran. I mean, the, the continued work to develop a Gulf security architecture um, with Saudi Arabia at the front and center of, of, of that uh, building, that architecture. And I, I really believe that MBS thinks now's the right time to be more visible, to create this, um, you know, this, to encourage this cooperation and uh, yeah, try to, to present a united front at the upcoming GCC summit. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, diplomacy has broken out in the region and it's very nice to see. I think, Robert, I think that's spot on. I think that Alula uh, conference uh, in January unlocked the intra-GCC uh, shackles that had been in place since 2017 and gave them an opportunity to communicate on a, a more normalized basis. I think a lot of this, and a lot of this actually goes back to September 2019, I think, for the Saudis. Um, and what happened, as we recall, is when the Abqaiq and Quraysh facilities were, were hit by drones and missiles, which the EU and, and the states, the U.S., agreed were, were Iranian-sourced, um, and uh, nothing happened. I think that was stunning to the Saudis. And there's, a lot, there's talk, I think, that, that you know, with the, 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 the manner of the withdrawal from Afghanistan prompted, you know, the Gulf to reconsider its security relationships and wonder about U.S. resolve and this sort of thing. I, I, it began, I think, more in September 2019 when they were shocked that nothing happened. And this was after they, I, I'm not going to say go along with, because the, the Trump foreign policy uh, as uh, it was sort of, um, you know, a diplomacy-free foreign policy in the sense that it was policy, uh, you know, very personalized policy. And uh, they, they would agree, and, and I think President Trump was right in that the JCPO did not address the really destabilizing issues of Iranian missile capacity and, and support for non-state actors. But ultimately, you know, in terms of the very serious sanctions regime, it, it wasn't effective. Um, Iran, you know, has greatly enhanced its uranium enrichment, its nuclear expertise, its advanced its ballistic missile capabilities, and, and despite the sanctions, which in part were intended to squeeze and starve the financial support for these non-state actors, those entities continue unabated. And at the end of the day, and I think in terms of certain, certain people within the U.S. administration, and certainly, the Iranian regime not only didn't fall, it, it became more hardline. So, so underlying all this, I, I agree with you, Robert, is that there's a, there's a coming out of the pandemic, there's a, a greater, uh, you know, the Alula un, unlocked things, and they can talk about these issues, but they really have to figure out their uh, regional security situation in light of a potential changed U.S. posture on, on the region. So I, I personally think that Mohammed bin Salman has got to appreciate this opportunity to, to engage at this level of leadership. And I know he want, sees himself as a leader. He hasn't made a trip overseas, I think, since Egypt in 2019. Uh, so this is an opportunity to, to show leadership within the region. And they're going to talk about trade and, and, and that sort of thing. But I think, as, as, as you note, really the big point is how are we going to secure ourselves in light of the changing global situation, especially vis-a-vis -vis Iran? At risk of mentioning one big thing out of turn, uh, I would say that uh, the burgeoning Saudi-Oman uh, relationship is one space that I'm watching pretty closely. And as you said, Richard, the after the, the this visit, we saw yet again new announcements about uh, trade and investment deals between the two countries. And I remember back in 2019, my uh, last trip to, to Mustad, um, I spoke with a number of Omanis who were essentially had who understood that um, the uh, Sultan Habus was not in great um, health, that his his days were, were were unfortunately numbered. But at the time, they were saying, you know, what's going on in Saudi Arabia? Um, we don't agree with everything, but 
on the economic front, what's happening there is what we need in our country, that mm -hmm. they're taking the bold necessary steps, whether it's on taxation or um, transforming, uh, you know, uh, trying to transform uh, government processes that we really desperately need to do uh, in, in Oman. And I believe that a lot of Omani saw in this new uh, Sultan uh, Haytham, the ability for him as a new Sultan to undertake some of those sensitive reforms that were long, long overdue. And part of that, uh, I'm not surprised to see this warming of, of relations between the two countries. And especially from Oman's point of view, um, looking at a ch a changing Saudi Arabia as a big market and as a, a really important regional partner um, to, uh, to make sure that, that they have on their side and, um, and, and can use to achieve some, some, uh, some very real and urgent economic interests. And it was interesting. His first trip, Sultan Haytham, his first trip was to Saudi once he once he was became head of state. And I understand that the you know that Saudi Arabia is and and Iran have had uh, discussions maybe back in January. I guess six meetings under the auspices of Iraq. That's going to be moving to Oman. Oman can certainly help them in Yemen. Um, yes, I agree. That's a that's a very promising uh, growth opportunity for both countries. And of course, Robert, you saw today that the road between Saudi Arabia and Oman opened up, saving 16 hours of drive time between the two nations, which is like D.C. to Florida. So that's <laughs> I didn't hear that it was uh, officially open, but I officially that, opened it officially opened <laughs> yes. today. So great. Yeah. Well, um, we can we can all get together and do a road trip. Uh, <laughs> so actually, that would be, be fascinating. I will say this because we we had pictures of it up in, uh, you know, our daily news review, Saudi U.S. Trade Group daily news review. And those pictures of it, and I'm wondering, there's got to be some sort of regular. It's like you know, it's like snow in 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 North Dakota. Uh, somebody has to come along and blow off the sand because you know it's going to get sand. It's a two-lane road, 765 kilometer two-lane road through through desert, and it's it's amazing. But somebody's going to have to keep that thing clear. They need a mega brush, <laughs> <laughs> a big a big blower. A big <laughs> They'll have the, the equivalent of the Bambonis on, uh, on an ice rink just exactly. going up and down the yeah. roads, uh, <laughs> dusting it off. Sandbonies. <laughs> Sandbonies. Sorry. That's, pure, that, that's pure gold. <laughs> um, let me take the opportunity to move on to the third topic, <laughs> yes, please. Um, the PIF selling shares in Saudi telecom company. Uh, it's the latest privatization push from the PIF, Saudi Public Investment Fund. Uh, they plan to raise as much as $3.1 through the sale of STC, offering 5% stake, uh, 100 million shares. Um, this is juicy. The STC is the Middle East's most profitable mobile phone operator and the kingdom's largest telecom company. Um, the price will be offered at between 100 rials and 116 rials, and it starts... Um, December 10th is the latest, I believe. Um, November 3rd, Bloomberg reported that the PIF was weighing a deal to combine the mobile phone infrastructure of STC and Zayn, Saudi Arabia. So I don't know where that stands vis-a-vis um, -vis this IPO, uh, but this is a good chance to talk a bit about all the privatization going on in Saudi Arabia and sort of how fast it's happening. Richard, let me kick it to you first here. Uh, I'm in, intrigued by this, and this is... This is uh, reaping what you sow. I, I think this is great because Saudi Arabia, and we've talked about this, you know, after the big crash in 2006 and the introduction of the Tadawul in 07, which is now privatized, you know, they, they've gone through steps to make itself a, a, an attractive $2.3 trillion market, you know, ninth largest in the world. And and I'm struck when you look at this, we're looking, so PIF is going to, PIF is going to reap maybe 3.1 billion from the sales of Saudi Telecom. They, they in September, floated uh, IPO 20% of its solutions, STC's solutions, Arabian Internet and Communication Services, um, which is sort of the technology side, for 966 million. So uh, they're gonna, close to $4 billion, they're gonna pull out of this by, by, by going into the equity markets. And this is a lever that wasn't there a long time ago. We have to remember, I mean, Saudi Arabia first went to, you know, international markets in terms of its bond in 2016. You know, and they weren't sure what's going to happen. That was oversubscribed significantly. So they're, they're finding ways, uh, and they've created uh, frameworks 
to that are mature, and this is how this is how mature countries raise money and government funding and this sort of thing. And and I think it's it's a testament that uh, to the stock market how they've grown that, and to their uh, widening uh, number of means to raise funds for investment. And you when you when you sort of throw that in along with the BlackRock uh, investment of of, of buying you know, paying $15.5 billion for 49% of 20-year lease of, of Aramco's natural gas pipelines, yet another means of raising funds that really wasn't utilized uh, five years ago, three years ago. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, it's just a much more complex, deeper market for uh, the Saudi government to swim in. Yeah, I would, I would say that this falls squarely within a longer term strategy to monetize government assets, ideally those assets that are not, you know, in a, in the sensitive uh, security or, or um, you know, strategic sectors that uh, have their own, you know, sensibility or uh, sensitivities, uh, and they're probably better left in the in the government sphere. And, and there certainly are going to be some commercial entities that, that fall into that category. But what I would say is hearing this news now in, um, you know, end of 2021, 2020, looking at 2022 is certainly much better than uh, some of the scenarios that were envisioned in, you know, the early days of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, mm -hmm. when um, people were almost talking about a fire sale of, of government assets. And I, I, I do think there was a period when uh, it was very alarming to think that some of these governments might be in a situation or might feel the pressure to really push through privatizations of, 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 of many of these government assets and sell them at, at really bargain rates. Um, I think that would have been um, a very unfortunate uh, situation to try to either um, you know, make um, budget shortfall, um, you know, make up for budget shortfalls or, or, or I guess to try to meet uh, privatization targets that, that, that would have been less, a, less of a concern. So that is happening now is, I think, a good thing. This is a better economic uh, period. The the states across the region, Saudi Arabia is economically speaking, from a macroeconomic indicators doing relatively well, growth rates and the economic recovery is just pushing along the best it's can, it can. Even the weaker states, uh, Bahrain and, I mean, weaker, fi you know, uh, financially speaking, right. uh, Bahrain and Oman did pretty well. So. Uh, Saudi Arabia is in a much stronger position to advance its privatization, um, various elements of its privatization initiative now um, than a year or two ago. And it, it, it's consistent with the Crown Prince has said, you know, if, 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 if PIF is only 70 percent of a company, that's wrong. Let's let's you know, let's shed it in the equities and we should be more 30 percent and then go from there. And this is a you know specific example of just that 70 to basically. 40, you know, they reduce their share and they, they, you know, they make it available to mostly Saudi, you know, institutional, of course, but a significant number of Saudi and private investors. We were joined today uh, by Dr. Robert Mogulnicki. Just awesome conversation with you, uh, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, check out Robert's work. Uh, he's working for the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, uh, Georgetown, busy guy. So we really appreciate your valuable time. Well, it's wonderful to be here and you do great work. So it's happy to be, to be part of it today. Thanks for being with us today, Robert. All righty.